Our scripture reading today is from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exultation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and, together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be of kind fruits and of his creatures. We are living in a time of rapid change and upheaval. I am referring to the fact that my wife and I both got new cell phones this past week. Uh, hers had a dying battery and mine uh, apparently had not had a new security update since April of 2020. So I guess it was time, the Lord's timing for us to have new phones. One of us enjoys getting new technology because you get to tinker with it and figure out where everything is and get it set up just right. Uh, the other one hates getting new technology because you have to tinker with it and figure everything out and get it set up just right. I'll let you guess which one is which, but we respond to change in different ways, don't we? Uh, we've been talking about change quite a bit lately around here uh, since change is coming, is upon us as Mike uh, prepares for retirement and as his uh, last official Sunday here is, is fast approaching, just a couple weeks. Uh, you all seem to be handling the change uh, well from what I can see. I've seen great appreciation for Mike for his years of faithful service and rightly so. Uh, I have felt a great deal of support and encouragement from you uh, toward me as I prepare for the new role that lies ahead. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, challenges will lie ahead, by the way. I'm sure there will be times when I need to find footing in uh, that new role, and as I try to find footing, there's a good chance I might make a misstep and 
uh, or step on somebody's, somebody's toes, um, you might find yourself thinking, I wish Mike were still here, and I'll probably be thinking the same thing at that point. <laughs> a change is challenging, it's difficult. Whether you're anxious or adventurous by nature about change, uh, it still takes some energy, it takes its, its toll. And so it's good for us to remember in the face of any challenge, any change, that our faith is built on something, rather on someone who does not change. To remind us of this, I wanted to look at the chapter uh, that, that uh, Jennifer just read for us from the book of James. I wanted us to hear verses 1 through 18, but I'll mainly be focusing on verses 12 through 18 in this sermon. If you want to grab a Bible near you, uh, it's, it's in there somewhere on page something or other. Uh, 770 is, my, is in my head. I don't know if that's right at all. I just, is that right? Seven, what is it? 1011. Where did I get 770? Somebody look up 770 and let me know what it is later. I thought maybe I was just having a, a vision of where it is, but I guess I don't. I guess I should, uh, I'll, I'll shut up about that before I get in trouble. Uh, so in verse 12, we begin with a word about trials and temptations. Uh, James writes to encourage his readers to persevere, to be steadfast through trials. Verse 12 says, we are blessed when we remain steadfast under trial, for when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life. What is a trial? What is uh, James talking about here? Well, I think in this context, it's just any difficult situation uh, that Christians might endure. James doesn't seem to have any specific kind of adversity in mind, because all the way back in verse 2, he said, count it all joy, joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So there are various kinds of trials you might encounter, and you can probably think of some, right? There's financial difficulties, health issues, uh, conflicts in relationships, a loss of loved ones, certainly persecution for the, the faith. There are various intensities of trials too, right? Uh, and it's difficult to compare, um, you know. Um, you think about children, you know, when you are two months old, Getting the hiccups is a, a severe trial. Uh, it, it really is. I, Rose was very grumpy about those things. She's not, she's not here, so I can talk about her, you know. And then the next month, you, you go through diaper rash, and then the hiccups don't seem so bad. But uh, after that, you're teething, uh, and then, you know, they, make you, they try to get you to eat gross mashed-up turkey and sweet potatoes. And, you know, I'm still pretty bitter about all of this. My point is that wherever you are in life, you're faced with something. You're faced with difficult things. And whatever trials you are facing, those are the trials James is talking about here. It doesn't have to reach a certain number on the, you know, the 0 to 10, the, the frowny to smiley pain chart, before it becomes spiritually relevant. Whatever trial you're facing, James's words apply to that. So what does James have to say about your trials? Well, he doesn't answer the age-old question that plagues us, you know, why? Why this struggle? Why now? Why me? Why again? But he does tell us some of what God is doing through these trials, what God accomplishes, what God's ultimate purpose is for us in the midst of the trial. And we still may have some questions, but 
look at what James's answer does give us. Back to verse 2. James says, Count it all joy when you meet trials, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, the full effect of which is that you are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word perfect is the idea of complete maturity, of, of what we're all looking forward to, of becoming the person that God made you to be, finally arriving at that point. It's uh, the same adjective that's translated as full, where it says, let steadfastness have its full effect. So enduring through trials is directly connected to our growth toward maturity. It's a necessary part of how God completes the good work that he began in us. Now, this idea of testing comes up quite a bit in scripture. God tested Israel in the wilderness, but um, Unlike, say, you know, standardized tests, this is the kind of testing that actually helps with learning. Um, just a joke about standardized tests. I know nothing. I have no opinion about education. I'm not an expert there. I'll let you educators know if I uh, should have made that joke or not. But uh, we, we have the idea, anyway, that y you first learn something, and then you take a test to see if you've learned it. But that's not how the Bible talks about testing. It's just not the concept they give there. The tests and trials are how you learn. God uses trials and testing to teach and train you, to shape you into who he has created and redeemed you to be. I think at heart, you know, Christian growth, it's not just a matter of God reaching in and reprogramming your heart. Sometimes that's, that's what we would really like him to do. That seems easier. Just reach in, turn up the knobs on faith and on virtue and switch off sin and vice and then I'm done. It's almost like Christian living, it's not just knowledge that can be given in a sermon or a class, as important as those things are, or I wouldn't be doing it, but Christian living is kind of like a skill you have to learn by doing. Faith grows when you're in a position that you have to trust God and cling to him, even in the face of trials. And in verse 12, James reminds us that there is a crown at the end. This is one thing that we are to look to, to find encouragement. There's a crown at the end. Think of an Olympic crown, by the way, of, of, of laurel leaves, not so much a big sparkly gold thing, but the, the prize that you win when you finish the race. God has promised this to those who love him, and the crown, that prize, is life. Life everlasting, life the way it was meant to be. So God uses trials to teach us and to train us to trust him, to seek him, in order to shape us into who we are made to be, in order, in order to lead us to the life everlasting that we were made to live. But during those trials, as James indicates, next we also face temptation. It's what happens when your sinful nature hits a patch of adversity, isn't it? Uh, this is what makes trials difficult. Well, one of the things, trials would be difficult enough if you didn't have a sin nature, but you're both a sufferer and a sinner. Trials are part of life. You can't control them. You can't control the, the pain that they cause. But you are responsible for your own sin. This is the big point that James is making. Your sin is a you problem. What James wants us to know is that temptation is not God's fault. God is not to blame. Don't say, I'm being tempted by God. God is not tempted by evil. God doesn't tempt anyone to do evil. God has nothing to do with evil other than judging it though he might allow it and work through it. 
James's point here is that if you sin, that's on you. It's not on God. It's not on anyone else. It's interesting he doesn't even list the devil here, though we know that Satan is a tempter. Satan certainly wants us to sin. He may really try to get us to sin. Honestly, it's not, necessarily, not, 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 not necessary because we sin just fine on our own. This is the point. No one else is to blame. It's your own sinful desires that lead you into sin. The, the image there of being lured and enticed to sin was common in James's day. It ultimately goes back to some fishing metaphors, which is a good analogy. If you go fishing, which I try to avoid at all costs, I can just sit and enjoy nature. I don't have to deal with worms and fish guts. But anyway, uh, or, or just the worms, probably. That, that's the problem. If I do it, it's just the worms, and there are no fish guts involved. But, you know, you just bait the hook and throw it in the water, right? From there, it's up to the fish to come and take a bite, and their own fishy nature is what leads them to, to make that fateful decision, leads them ultimately to death. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes up what comes out. That's what James's brother, Jesus, said. The source of defilement is already there on the inside. So if full-grown steadfastness makes you grow in faith, makes you full-grown, gives you life, then full-grown sin gives birth to death. Those are pretty high stakes. We look at the trials in our lives and we see just a matter of financial success or failure, of health or sickness, of dignity or humiliation, comfort or pain, even physical life or death. And those things do matter. God cares about those things. But in the midst of those trials, there is an even greater issue. Do we pursue steadfastness that leads to life, or do we give ourselves over to sin that leads to death? And our response our, our making of that decision is rooted in something even deeper still. Do we trust God? Do we say, God is tempting me. God is setting me up to fail. God is just out to get me. He must just like to watch me squirm. Do we give in to that deception? Or do we remember the truth that James tells us? Verses 17 through 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. In these verses, James tells us some things that are important to know about God if we're to make it through the trials of life. So in the remainder of the time, I just want to look at Three things, or kind of boil this down to, to three things to know about God as you face change, as you face trials, whatever difficulty uh, is in your life right now. First, God gives good gifts. It's more than that. Every good and every perfect gift is from God. Anything good you have now or have ever had is from God. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Reminds me of another saying of Jesus, this one from Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? I mean, I might do that now just to troll my kids, because that's, you know, just to mess with them, but uh, that's beside the point. If you then 
Though you are evil, yeah, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is good. He is the source of all goodness. He only gives good gifts to his children. God is not trolling you. The, the Venn diagram of good gifts and God's gifts is a perfect circle. Everything God gives you is good, and everything good is from God. The Father of lights, meaning the God who made the stars and set them in space, he is the one who gives you every good and perfect gift. And you need to know that during trials because it certainly doesn't feel that way. When you're pushed to the breaking point and you thought you were already broken, it doesn't feel like God is acting in your best interest. You might be tempted to believe that he is distant, that he's cold, that he's uncaring. Maybe he's forgotten you altogether. He's got bigger things to do as he tends to the machinery of the universe in whose gears you happen to be caught. You know, the Bible is clear anytime suffering comes up. I mean, think of the book of Job. We're never going to be able to comprehend or sort out God's sovereign purposes for us in the midst of suffering. Hidden things, things too high for us. There are things that belong to God alone. But God has shown us who he is. God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. We don't understand who he's, or what he is doing, but we can still know who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. More than that, we know that who he is is not subject to change. James says that in this father of lights, this maker of the stars, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Scholars tell us that the terms here for variation and shadow are terms from astronomy. Now, those lights in the sky, the stars, and the sun and the moon are all predictable but ever-changing. The sun rises and sets each day in a course that changes slightly over the course of the year. The moon goes through its phases. The stars turn in the sky and, and shift position to mark the seasons. Interesting, those changes are at times, at least in sort of ancient Jewish thought and places, a, a metaphor for steadfast obedience to God. Uh, when the book of Jude talks about, uh, mentions angels who did not stay in their proper place, it's essentially demons, uh, there are echoes of this connection between stars and angels in some ancient Jewish writings. The, the stars that stay the same each season represent angels who obey God. You know, they, they fill the darkness with order and light. They know their place in the sky. They hold their course and their aim. And each in their season returns and returns and is always the same. If they fall as Lucifer fell, they fall in flame. You know, the planets, the shooting stars, the comets and such, they don't follow the, the pattern. They're considered wanderers or in, in error. But even stars that are always the same are not always the same. They, they change from season to season. What keeps them constant, going back to Genesis 1, is the decree of God that created them and still sustains them. He made the sun to rule the day and the moon at night set them in their proper place so that they shine when they are supposed to. He made the stars, it says, for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So God is the unchanging will behind the ever-changing cycle of the universe. Things are so subject to change. How can they have some predictability? Because there is a God who upholds everything by the word of his power. 
it's unsurprising that uh, Christian thinkers, uh, notably uh, famous old dead guy Thomas Aquinas, uh, sort of connected with this idea from Aristotle, maybe you've heard of this, called an unmoved mover, the idea that everything is in motion in the universe, things are moved by other things, it all had to begin somewhere, it can't just go on to infinity, so there must be one who moves everything and yet is himself unmoved. And this is God. That idea fits so well with the Bible's understanding. Everything we see shifts and changes, but nevertheless follows a general order. How can a world of constant changes nevertheless display order and predictability? God is the unchanging creator of the ever-changing creation. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. I'm dwelling on this idea of change, as you can tell, since change is in our minds. Uh, and it is the nature of created things to change. At one point we didn't exist. Now we do. That's a pretty big change. We grow up, we grow old, the world around us changes, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Still, there's nothing new under the sun. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Speaking of dead Greek philosophers, uh, a guy named Heraclitus is famous for saying, you may have heard that you can't step into the same river twice. It's always changing as new water flows through, and yet it is always the same river somehow. Uh, he's also known for saying... Uh, if you can wrap your mind around this, uh, that, that the world is essentially made out of fire. Everything in the world is made out of fire. You think of fire, it's dynamic, it's, it's changing, it's either kindled or it's quenched. Uh, that's the nature of the universe. Change is the essence of the cosmos. And for Heraclitus, uh, no God made this world of fire. That's just how it's always been. Seems to me that uh, he described the world at least as we experience it. Uh, with a good deal of ac accuracy. Everything is always changing. That seems to be the nature of the world that we live in. Of course, Scripture would add that uh, the world is ever-changing precisely because it is created. Uh, to be created is to be subject to change. The world changes because it's in its very nature to change. So whether you are more adventurous or more anxious in the face of change, we all want to find something that stays the same, some foundation. Now, God may bless us with some things that stay for a long time, long marriages, long-serving pastors. Those things still can change over their natural course, and they, too, don't last forever. I'm reminded of another famous philosopher who wrestled with the change and the transience of life, speaking, of course, of Olaf, the frozen uh, snowman, and his struggle to accept change in the second Frozen movie, answered by his dialogue partner, uh, the philosopher Princess Anna, who in song form encourages him to look to certain certainties, some things that never change. And she proceeds to list items that do in fact change, some of them before the movie is over. Uh, many a church has experienced conflict over change, and some conflicts come as people expected the church to be what only God could be, and that is unchanging. We look to certain certainties that turned out to be not as certain as we thought. I've heard of people um, more than once um, as a church grew a little bit saying, well, I miss my small church. 
Even a change most people would think of as good, uh, it's a change. We don't like it. You know, churches are created entities made of created beings, and therefore it's, it's in our nature to change. Often they need to change if they're to stay the same, in a sense. You know, we don't change the message, but if we want to deliver the same message to a changing culture, uh, we might change the way we do things at some point. And just think about Bible translations. Why don't we still use the King James Version that was written in 1611? Well, because language has changed since 1611, and if we want to say the same message, we need a new translation. Otherwise, if we didn't change the translation, people would hear a different message from it. To keep the message the same, you, you need to change the way you've translated it. And of course, there are bad changes that ought to be resisted. But the Christian life is all about change, right? It starts with repentance, a change of mind, turning from idols to serve the true and living God. It continues with change. We're to be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. When Christ returns, Paul says, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's a good change. The change of decay and death will be gone will be done with sin forever, that's a good change, and we'll be with the one who never changes. God never changes because God couldn't possibly get any better. This may sound strange to say, but God has no potential. God doesn't need any potential. There's no higher level for God to achieve. Uh, the way we put this in technical theological terms, God is pure act, pure actuality. God is living and active to the utmost. He's, he's not unchanging like a rock that is dead and unmoving. He's, he's changed, uh, not changed, he's unchanging because he couldn't possibly be any more active and living. He is the creator. He is the infinite power from which all creatures and all blessings flow. He never came into being. There is nothing more and nothing greater for him to become. There are no virtues or perfections for him to acquire. He has them all. His nature is the very definition of them all. God does not change in knowledge, in power, in character, in his sovereign purposes, or in his promises to you and me. See, church is not the unchanging refuge. Church points us to the unchanging refuge. The God who was with this church at our founding as First Christian Church in 1840 is the same God who is with Christ First Church today. The God who brought Pastor Mike here in 2001 and worked through him for 21 years is the God who goes with him to his next calling. And it's good to know that that God is the same. He does not change. The final thing to know about God is in verse 18. I'll just say it this way. God delights in us. James says that God, by his own will, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits are something that you celebrate. Uh, this verse, by the way, the bringing forth, it's, it's about the conversion of believers. Uh, what's going on when someone becomes a Christian? God brings us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of his death and burial and resurrection in which we may die to sin and live to God through faith in him. 
As Paul said in Romans 1, that gospel is the power of God for salvation. By the power of that word of the gospel, we are saved, and this is God's work bringing us forth. And this is God's will. By his own will, he brought us forth. This is something God desired to do, chose to do, wanted to do. You didn't just somehow hack the system, and now God has to save you. Man, I was really hoping to stomp on that one, but somebody went and told him about Jesus, so I guess now he's saved. I'm not God. I might be like that. Uh, God is not grudging. God is not reluctant, not hesitant in the slightest about the salvation of his people. This is what he wants. He wants you to come. He wants you to receive and even enjoy what he offers you in Christ. Where it says, by the way, he brought us forth, the translation Jennifer read, I think got it right. It's the same word in verse 15 where full-grown sin gives birth to death. The word means to give birth to. God gave us birth. It's, It's maternal language. Though the Bible consistently calls God Father, the scriptures aren't afraid to use this kind of maternal imagery. This goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.18 speaks of God who gave birth to Israel. Obviously a metaphor, but one that tells us something about God's attitude toward and relationship with his people. What's the significance of this metaphor? Well, I, um, I've never given birth myself, clearly. Um, but there clearly is an intimate connection between the mother and the child. The mother, seems like Captain Obvious again, but mother is very much personally invested in the birth of this person into the world. It's not like bringing forth a batch of muffins or bringing forth gadgets on an assembly line. It's not a matter of indifference. There is a very personal connection between the one who gives birth and the one who is born. I think, you know, even in the, the trial of postpartum issues, we, we, we see that. There's a, a, things have gone not the way they were designed to, but there's a, a powerful connection there. You know, God's people are no matter of mere indifference to him. He is personally invested and involved in our lives. Though he's not dependent on us in any way, he doesn't need us. He's complete and blessed in himself from eternity past. Nevertheless, he freely and graciously and genuinely takes personal interest in the lives of his people. Like a good mother, he brings us forth, cares for us, and delights in us. That is to say, God loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How much more personally invested could God be? God the Son took on human nature so that in his human nature he could do what divine cannot. He could suffer and die for the sins of his people. Well, if you want to know more about what that means, what the love of God in Christ means, we would be happy to speak about it uh, more. Uh, Either myself, Pastor Mike, while he's still here, any of our elders... Um, If this is something that you already know and have believed, then my encouragement from this text this morning is simply to look at it again, look at it anew in the midst of whatever you're going through. Just know that God loves you, the one who made the stars, the one who never changes, who never gives up, who always wins. He has determined to work in all things 
for the good of those who love him. To those who love him, he has promised the crown of life. He will give you every good and every perfect gift that you need. He will give our church as we go forward every good and every perfect gift that we need. Mike and Kara, he will give every good and every perfect gift that they need as well. What greater assurance can we have of this, that he has already given us his son? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just this glimpse that you have shown us of who you are. We know that you are beyond our ability to comprehend. You are active, as we said, to the utmost, living, the, the power behind the creation of the universe, and yet you never change. You are always the same through it all. Help us to recognize what this means for us, that this unchanging God who made and governs the turning of the stars is the God who loved us, who gave his son for us. Though we are, we confess, sinful people, as your word says by nature, children of wrath, following our own sinful desires into rebellion against you, giving ourselves over to slavery to sin. And yet you would send your own son to redeem us, to transform us, to give us new birth through the message of the gospel, through this good news of just what you have accomplished. You sent your son to die, to suffer in, in agony, to experience the pain of this life, to hold fast through a trial that we cannot imagine, to bear the full wrath of God, and yet he remained steadfast under that trial. He kept trusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, Father, that is what we look to this morning. We certainly hold to this promise from your word and seek to remain steadfast in trials. We know that we will not do it perfectly. We thank you that Christ already has. May we hold fast to him, knowing that you are God and Father who does not change. You are holding fast to us. Strengthen our faith as we remember your great faithfulness to us. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.